0: My name is Shingo Tu, and you're listening to Artistry.
1: Welcome to another episode of Artistry, where art meets industry. We are your hosts, Rochelle Etienne Robinson and Stan Substantial Robinson. All right. And welcome back to another episode of Artistry. Today's guest is international hip hop artist and producer Shingo Tu. Shingo, welcome to the show.
0: Thank you for having me. What an honor.
1: Thank you. Thank you.
0: Appreciate you being here. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: Born in Tokyo, Japan. However, you spent much of your childhood in uh, Tanzania as well as London. Mm -hmm. What do you remember most about that time?
0: Oh, yes. I remember everything about Tanzania like it was yesterday. Wow. And those were definitely my formative years. Mm-hmm. I basically uh, spent three years there um, running around with my German shepherd dog, which was a guard dog. And unfortunately, uh, we had to leave him there. That was one of my traumatic experiences that led me to art, actually. I might mm-hmm. talk about that later. But um, yeah, I remember everything like it was yesterday. Like we saw UFOs, like I was just climbing on trees and a lot of wild things happen. Yeah. Wow. wow.
1: So what, what made uh, what brought you there in the first place? What were your parents, what were they doing?
0: Yeah. So my dad just worked for like a trade company okay. mm-hmm. and like many years after he kind of hinted that he, he somehow like whistleblowers on a, on a boss and then, the basically, you know, me, my eldest sister and my mom in the 1970s, mind you, right, just family just got sent over to Africa, wow.
2: Wow. which
0: was definitely, yeah, challenging uh, mm. for the entire family, I bet, you know. But sure. for me, I had That's no sad. idea what was going on. So right. I opened my eyes and I was in Dar es Salaam.
1: Wow. Mm. Wow. <laughs> Why Tanzania, of all places?
0: That's the thing. I, I really don't know. But I, mm-hmm. I'm assuming that a lot of companies go there to either trade mm-hmm. Japanese raw material or look for raw material in, in those uh, countries. Mm-hmm. And it's just everything revolves around trade, gotcha. like re- resources. Yeah, sure.
1: Okay. And then from there, you went to London. And mm-hmm. what was that experience like?
0: Yeah, London was great. Uh, I really liked it. I developed a heavy Cockney accent when I was, you know, living there. They always used to make fun of me, and I would, I would, I would get picked on a lot for being Asian. But it really uh, made me tough, you know. Right. And uh, just like any other uh, English kid, I really loved football. I really wanted to stay there, and then you know my time was up. So my family moved right. to Japan. But then it was another awakening right and i just kept learning wherever i went you know sure yeah that was my childhood
3: yeah how many years did you spend um in those areas like how many years in london versus uh, tanzania and uh japan
0: yeah it was about three years each wow yeah
3: so it's like almost uh, like as you start to adapt and get used to it and as quick oh yeah yeah just definitely yeah It's a heartbreak each time,
0: you know, like leaving a place is very hard.
3: Sure. Yeah. Yeah, It's like I want to say I can relate, but like it wasn't different cities or countries for me. It was uh, like I went to a lot of different uh, elementary schools. And so um, and I guess for a kid that feels like a new, you know, a new city completely. Mm -hmm. But um, It's like I would be in one place for like maybe two years and then I'd end up somewhere else for like a year two years and then end up somewhere else. And, uh, I think only one of the places was actually with my neighborhood, um, with the the kids from my neighborhood. And so that experience was, uh, really, really, uh, I guess, uh, I wouldn't say traumatic, but I just, like, I can kind of get a, a picture, but I can't imagine just being around, you know, just not seeing a lot of yourself, you know what I mean? And the other people around you. Yeah, like, definitely. Yeah, right.
0: Yeah. So, so, some, yeah, some areas were quite hostile, but sure. But you kind of learn quick how to adapt in those situations, and then you know you just learn how to socialize. And also, art was like one of the icebreakers for me. You know, right. I remember when I went to England, and because I I I really like to draw. Mm. And let me just get it out the way: the the reason I started drawing was when I left Tanzania, like I didn't even touch anything, a crayon the whole time I was in Tanzania, cause I would just be running around playing outside. Mm. But the night before our family left, our dog Baron, who was definitely a trained guard dog. So just super loyal, right? He knew mm. something was up because we had left on family trips plenty times during that time, you know, during that period, right. but he knew mm. something was going on. So, he was like waiting outside the window, just looking at us, um, and yeah, like I, I, I felt compelled to do something about it, but I didn't know how to handle a camera, right? right? So I was trying to draw the dog's portrait, and I just couldn't draw very well, so it really, right. really frustrated me, right? So that's when I started drawing, and then during the few months that our family was in Tokyo before we moved to um, England. Mm -hmm. Like back then we used to get just a lot of flyers, various flyers uh, in the mail and it'll be blank on the other side. Mm -hmm. And me growing up in Africa, I'd never seen blank sheets of paper before, like so white. (laughs) So I was like, what is this? You know, just so (laughs) white and so plain. So I would just like, on it all day and then I, I became pretty good at it you know mm. so by the time I moved to England one of the first things this 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 is all coming back to me now but one of the first things I did was like I started drawing like little mazes for people to just oh, to solve
2: wow. yeah right. you know what I mean yeah right. and
0: then it has some characters on the outside and I just started passing them out and they just loved it you know so that was one of the ways I was able to befriend a lot of people in oh, wow. in in my elementary school
3: Mm. That's a great story. Yeah, that's awesome. That's really awesome.
1: Yeah, I mean, one of the reasons why I always love um, uh, when we have our guests on the show to really speak to, you know, their formative years, because a lot of times we, it's not something that we have to constantly think about every day. Mm-hmm. Right. And so you know? when you get started, you're like, oh, my God, I totally forgot about that. That yeah. we, I even did that. So yeah. thank you for yeah. sharing that. And so after London, you, you know, you return back to Japan and then, um, right around I would say when you were fifteen, you moved to the states to the Bay That's Area. Right. Yeah. Um, and then you enrolled in the uh, University of California, Berkeley. Tell us about that.
0: I was a electrical engineering and computer science major. Really? Oh, uh, okay. Yeah. Okay. So the reason our family moved to the Bay Area because it's because my dad started working in Silicon Valley. Okay. So just off. of you know, just on the strength of that, my dad was like, you just, you know, why don't you apply for engineering and artificial intelligence is going to be a huge thing. So you might want to learn computer programming, you know? Mm. And I didn't really, I was just a high school kid, you know, I just liked art for sure. But I was like, what the heck, you know, I'll just apply to Cal because my oldest sister was going to UC Davis at the time. And I did get into UCLA and other schools in Southern California, but my parents wouldn't even like allow me to entertain that idea Mm. because they were leaving. Right. So they're like, no, just, you know, stick close to each other. Right. So my parents kind of uh, convinced me to go to Cal, Mm. but that was their downfall. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, You know, I never was right after that. Oh wow, <laughs> wow! So my dad, my dad always makes fun of me. Like he regrets two things. One was to take me to Africa, and the second, second was to recommend me to go to Cal. Really? well, well yeah.
3: Why? Why did he re, uh, regret it?
0: Oh, he's kidding because I'm a hip hop musician <laughs> now. <laughs> gotcha. You.
3: <laughs> you know. I, I had my <laughs> I didn't want to assume but I was like uh, I feel like hip hop uh <laughs> might be what you were hitting toward. <laughs> well, uh, that's his theory, you know, because mm-hmm. we did
0: inevitably listen to a lot of drums everywhere yeah. we went. Like yeah. without being cliché, it is true though. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. We, we had drums up the house and you yeah. know, that was our entertainment. Right. Gotcha.
1: So at um during your time in school and, of course, in the Bay Area is when you
0: were first exposed to hip hop culture. Right. So when I was in London, the only extent I felt anything remotely hip hop was through Michael Jackson, mm-hmm. you know, and you know what I mean? Beat yeah. it and that kind yeah. of hype, mm-hmm. like break dancing was uh, really great, but I never really had exposure to rap music when I was, when I was in England, really not much. Mm. And then all throughout my years in Japan, I was completely sheltered from anything American pop. Mm. And ironically, the only thing that was big in Japan was Michael Jackson. (laughs) This was like a thriller years. So they would actually play it on the school TV. You know, he was that popular. Wow. (laughs) Yeah. But, um, I was, very just into being Japanese, you know, and it yeah. was very, it was like being in the military, you know, they're so strict over there. Mm-hmm. Like you can be in a third, fourth grade and you have to run assemblies and, you know, I just got sucked into that whole thing. You know what I mean? Right. Wow. And when I was freed from that in the eighth grade and I went to American high school, I almost felt as if I had gone back to elementary school, how just free it was. Mm. Wow. You know what I mean? And then academically, you're really not pressured that much. Like right. you don't even, you know, you don't even know how to divide numbers and they don't even make fun of you, you know? Right. Like it was just all over the place. You know what I mean? Like I just, it was unfathomable unfathom, for me how right. free it was, you know, no uniforms, people bumping music. you <laughs> right. was like right. walking into a musical, you know, yeah. and what I had envisioned what America was. So right. I, that was my newfound freedom. And yeah, I just went, went back to being a kid again. I started drawing and playing sports and I just enjoyed my high school years. And that's kind of when hip hop, um, came to me just through radio and friends, mm-hmm. but I never really attempted to do anything other than through art.
2: Right.
3: right. Because of your exposure to so many different cultures, of course, uh, um, your own people's culture in uh, American culture, African culture, European culture, before you even started rhyming, how did that exposure inform your your creation in terms of art and then later music? Like, how, how did you pull from those uh, influences, I guess?
0: Um, it's really hard to describe, but it was a slow step of, I guess, finding your own voice, no matter what your craft is. Right. Because I still feel that, you know, like my first love was art really, mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. express myself through art. And you kind of have to be an introvert to do that, I think.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And, you know, I just loved entertaining people, but really through my work. And, you know, I was never like the class clown, but I would always make something that'll make, me, make people laugh or I'll put on the good plays. Mm-hmm. And even though I was a class president, in sixth grade, I would have to like assume certain roles, you know, the studious role, mm-hmm. but I would also be inclined to do activism and then, you know, use art. And it was, it was all, all about combining different elements that really appealed to me when I first got into hip hop. So just, I just had like little skill sets here and there dispersed, you know, wow. I wasn't like skilled in one thing, you know, wow. either poetry or even like, Using vocals or singing, I was never like skilled at one thing, right? But I really like the idea that you can just make your own creation, Mm -hmm. you know, like whatever it is, you know, sampling, making beats, drawing your album art, which you do Mm -hmm. as well. And I just love that DIY aspect of it. And
2: yeah,
0: and uh, yeah, and even throughout high school, you know, I would just make like video collages that people do now, but I was using like. So so instead of like a hip hop DJ making mixtapes, I was actually using two VCR decks to make wow, yes. like political candidates say crazy stuff <laughs> right, and play right. in front of a class, you know, I would be nice. doing stuff like that. So that was very hip hop to me. Right. I think. Yeah.
3: Yeah. Just kind of staying with that for a minute. The, the whole idea that you can't, uh, you don't necessarily have to be limited to one form of expression. Um, I just kind of want to explore that a bit more because that's something uh, that's a conversation that I recently had where I was basically just uh, trying to explain to someone, you know, like when you look at like certain eras of art, like, for example, the Harlem Renaissance, oftentimes um, some of these great uh, artists of those times weren't necessarily they may have been known for the one thing. But then when you dug a bit deeper, you found out that they explored multiple uh, disciplines. Right. And for example, one of my heroes is uh, Gordon Parks. Um mm-hmm. and who, you know, uh, amazing photographer. Uh, we all know about his work, but um uh, but he uh, was a journalist as well along with being a uh, a filmmaker. Um uh, but then he also scored the uh, uh, like for example, I think it was The Learning Tree, um where he scored the he did the original score. So he wrote symphonies as well. This dude was amazing. So um, so people like you, you know, I identify a lot with. Uh, you know, I feel like there's there's so many ways to create and achieve your vision. Like, you know, why limit yourself to just one? This idea that you can only master one thing. Um, I feel yeah. Like, yeah, I feel like it's very much putting ourselves in a box. You know.
0: Yeah, I think I think the good thing about that is when you think of any old idea, mm-hmm. whether whether it's like a pun or whatever you know whatever that sparks you you immediately think what is the most effective way to convey this idea Mm -hmm. is it going to be a sticker is it going to be a t-shirt is it going to be a song is it going to be a play you know like you have all these options and then you kind of figure out like this is how i want to say it you know what i mean and that's i think is is very important sometimes you know because You know what I'm saying? Like, like how we write a song, for example, but sometimes it might be more effective in other mediums.
3: Right. And then sometimes you can't find the instrument you want to find. So then you like kind of put your own twist in and make your own instrument Shingo, you know, mm-hmm. like, so tell, like, tell me about that. I remember being on tour with you and seeing you pull out this device, uh, this machine and you doing some amazing things with it. And uh, it's funny, I never got a chance to really ask you about that. But mm-hmm. uh, but I remember hearing something about you have you playing a role in the development of that, not just picking that up and playing yeah. it. So can you tell us about that real quick?
0: Sure, so that was called the Vestax Fader Board that probably came out late 2000. Mm-hmm. So it was in development development for a few years. But that is a result of me working with a DJ, uh, DJ equipment company called Vestax, which is mm-hmm. pretty much defunct right now. Mm-hmm. Um, the brand still survives, but the co- corporation is no more. Mm-hmm. And they were active in the Bay Area turntablist scene, mm-hmm. you right. know, led by the likes of DJ Qbert, D-Styles, Apollo, Mix Master Mike, you know, the whole, whole nine, the whole culture right. of turntablism which is mainly, you know, juggling and scratching and just using your hands and being dexterous on the decks, right? Right. So I was always exposed to that. I was a huge fan of it. I deeply respected that culture. But me, you know, coming from more of a producing side, I was always curious, like, hey, you know, these guys are scratching records, but it's kind of lacking the the, the musical uh theory part mm-hmm. you know what I mean like mm-hmm. it, it is it's just it kind of started to bug me a little bit that it, some things aren't key or what if they were more in key mm-hmm. so I I really wanted to combine the technique of clicking the fader opening and closing the fader using your fingers and then I wanted to incorporate incorporate tones mm-hmm. into it based on uh, keys right. so for a while I was just using a multi-track recorder Mm -hmm. Right. Like a hard disk, multi-track recorder on track one, I would record a long C note and then a D note, E note, F note, so on and so forth. I would just have the tones recorded already. Mm -hmm. And then I would just raise different tones and I would cut it with another another crossfader. And that way I could literally play a song if the tones match the key. Right. So I took that idea and then I showed it to the Best people and then we started working on it. And then, yeah, a couple and this years is where later, it engineering
1: was came in handy, <laughs> oh, <right. laughs>
0: yeah. No, and then it's, it is very versatile, yeah. You know, it is very versatile. That's so, awesome. so that was just my way of like breaking down the music, musical scale, mm-hmm. and then learning the difference between major and minor. And once you break it down, it's really easy, right. mm-hmm. you know. But back then, not many people were like doing it in a scientific way mm-hmm. because. The piano like brainwashes you, you know, that the C major scale is the only scale, which mm-hmm. is definitely not the case. It's just laid out in a way that C major is the easiest to play. Right. You know? Wow. Mm.
2: That's
1: awesome. Yeah. So speaking of um, still staying at the in the Bay Area, this is when you were first also exposed to um, civil rights groups, um, as well, like the Black Panthers, as well as Asian American activist groups. Um, Mm -hmm. what first attracted you to activism?
0: So I have a good episode for that. So I went to high school in a place called Menlo Park. Mm -hmm. So pretty, uh, half of it is like affluent suburban Caucasian town. Um, you know, Like you had like members of the 49ers living there. Like, you know, it's a very chill suburb, right? And then the other half was like Redwood City. You had Palo Alto, East Palo Alto, like a lot of local Hispanic, you know, African-American and very little Asian, but you had more of the culture, (laughs) you know, and it, it was a very eclectic mix, you know, it was a really cool public school. But during my time there, I took like a AP history class, I mm-hmm. think. And then we all had to pick one um, Supreme Court case, mm-hmm. right? And then just kind of do a quick report about it. And I was looking down the list and then one name just jumped into my eyes. It was it said Korematsu. Mm-hmm. And, his, and that's the name of Fred Korematsu, who basically... Uh, you know, took his case and went all the way up to the Supreme Court, whether the Japanese internment yeah, of American citizens, right? U.S. citizens yeah. were constitutional or not. And mm-hmm. eventually uh, it was deemed unconstitutional. So all of, all of those people, you know, kind of got their justice, you know, albeit decades later, you know. Yeah. But anyway, I did my research and then I was really shocked by, the variety of reactions I got when I interviewed these elder uh, members of the Japanese American community, you know, some wanted to talk about it, some flat out refused to talk about it because it had left like an emotional scar. Mm -hmm. And that's when I saw like, wow, you know, just the generational divide why kids my age had American names, very fluent in English and knew nothing about Japanese customs. Mm -hmm. And yet, our parents' and grandparents' age, you know, they they were very much Japanese through and through, but they refused to kind of visit that past of World War II. You know what I mean? So I I learned all that history, and I got really emotional during the um, report. Mm -hmm. I finished my report. And then the history teacher, even though every other case he would have a lengthy comment about, Mm -hmm. how the report was after I finished and I was pretty much pounding the podium he he said nothing he was like okay next
3: (laughs) Wow! and
0: and then I was like you know the the whole journey to get there was interesting enough but the fact that the teacher pretty much ignored my report that really set me off you know and then that's kind of when I started developing more like Social commentary, and then my art teacher would start saying, Oh, your art has social commentary, mm-hmm. and I appreciated that. And, and I kind of took that to Berkeley when everything just made sense to me. Right.
3: Yeah. How do you feel? What role do you feel like the, the arts um, play in these social issues and um, politics? What do you feel like uh, is the role that it should play in this?
0: I mean, of course, art is is a language,
3: mm-hmm.
0: you know, and it can be a secular language, you know, it could be a broad language, it could be a very minimalist language. It, it all really depends on what type you're, of language you're speaking. And in especially in today's day and age, art is mainly transmitted through just memes and, you know, small four inch squares you know but it still carries a lot of weight whatever significance you put into it you know what i mean whatever symbolism metaphors it's it's a language you know so it's a language that elicits emotional response Mm. right and a lot of times it might require some knowledge by the audience but it also speaks to the core of the recipient as well you know Mm. like especially during these times we talk about it a lot, like you know the history of oppression and you know all the systemic issues we have. But I, I personally, this is my personal belief that you don't need to teach a history of hate to a child to teach them the importance of love, you know, and caring and sharing. Because you just know what feels good, you know. You don't have to show them the horrors of humanity in order for that person to know what is right or wrong. You know what I mean? Because it's all relative, still, right? It's all relative based on what that person was taught, you know? So, yeah, art, art is important on many levels, you know?
1: known for rapping "Battle Cry," the theme song of the hip hop um, hip hop influenced uh, anime *Samurai Champloo*, which was mm-hmm. produced by the late Nujibes. How mm-hmm. did that come together, and how did you first meet Nujibes?
0: So, I recall I was living in El Cerrito at the time, north of Berkeley. Mm-hmm. I was in the Bay Area from like '89 to 2008, so almost 20 years. And when I was living in El Cerrito, I just got an email out the blue from Nujabes, and it was an invitation for me to hop on a 12-inch with him, because that was his thing back mm-hmm. in the, you know, in those times. Mm-hmm. So, it, it was just a general invitation, and then we decided to meet up during one of my trips to Japan, and he he gave me a beat tape that we also listened to in his, in his van um, before we... Parted, and that was that, and and eventually, you know, I connected with him remotely, and then we started working on song. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: Now, as an artist, you you rap in um, fluently in Japanese as well as in English. Like, how difficult would you say it is? Because when you think of when you certain words don't translate, how do you find the words, and also wanting to ride the beat and with rhythm and and like you talked about before with music theory, like, do you find it very difficult to navigate that space between being bilingual using both languages? Like, to talk talk to us about that process.
0: Sure, well, I believe it's all trial and error mm-hmm. and also taking your time to develop a concept for a song, doing your research and all that. But um, for me, I've kind of taken it upon myself to, not mixed the two languages Mm -hmm. because I want to master Japanese and I want to master English. And of course the mastery of language does not translate to mastery of rapping. That's a whole nother level of skill you got to require and also having your own style to it, you know? Mm -hmm. So yeah, I mean, I, I, I knew from the get go that when I started, I was pretty much, gosh, pretty much 20 years old, which is super late to go into the rap game, right? It was 95. Yeah. So I was barely 20. Mm. And I knew I was very late to the game. I had a lot to catch up. Even just as a listener, I had a lot to catch up because even throughout high school, I was not like the biggest hip hop hit. I just listened to tribe and diggable planets and mm-hmm. all the friendly stuff, you know what I mean? Right. I wasn't like a hip hop historian by any means. I I was removed from the East Coast. Right. I didn't know anything. And, you know, I just I was just into West Coast. I just mm-hmm. like Farside. I liked Dell, you know, I was I was just a fanboy. I really didn't know about the history. But, you know, when I just started developing my own style, you know, like it it was just an experiment experiment you know mm-hmm. everything was like even how i talk like i'm not the most eloquent speaker you know my accent is just still mixed of california mm-hmm. england maybe maybe some japanese who knows right. i feel even awkward like listen to myself speak mm-hmm. sometimes you know what i'm right. saying so it was all, all like I said, just an experiment. You know what I mean? Like how I sound on the mic, how I sound on a particular song, and then switch over to Japanese. And but every project I really try to do my best to make it as unique as possible. And that's that's um I think one of the reasons I've been at it for so long, because I'm just still experimenting, mm-hmm. you know?
3: Right. Yeah. Do you have a preference um in terms of which language you prefer to to rap in?
0: You know, It's really hard to say, but naturally people see me as a Japanese person. But if you look at my history, I've been in the U S longer than any country. Right. I've been in the U S for over 30 years now. Mm -hmm. So I think and feel American more than any other culture that I associate with. But my roots is Japanese, you know, so that that's how I feel. You know, I feel closer. I feel more open, um, when I'm rapping in English. Mm-hmm. but I feel closer to my roots when I'm rapping in Japanese. Mm. Wow. Yeah, And there's a lot more to pull from, you know, a lot yeah. more to pull from, um, because of the history of the Japanese language is very rich, you know, mm-hmm. very much influenced by a lot of different cultures. And I feel the Japanese rappers don't take en- enough advantage of that. You know what mm. I mean? They, like they're more eager to prove to the world that they're American.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean,
0: that goes for a lot of things, not just rappers, but you know what I mean?
3: Yeah, for sure. Yeah, and and speaking of your history um, in Japanese culture, I remember you telling me you were able to trace uh, your roots back to um, some of the early samurai. Mm -hmm. Instantly, when you were talking a second ago, it made me think of that. Uh, Could you share that briefly? Of course. So my
0: last name, which is my father's uh, paternal last name, is Annen. Mm-hmm. And An is peace, and Nen is pray. Mm-hmm. So, so it's a Buddhist Shingon sect, mm-hmm. and Shin means truth, and Gon is word. Mm-hmm. So it's a it's a Buddhist Shingon sect uh, started by this guy named uh, Kukai uh, over twelve hundred years ago, and he he was a he was a very intelligent man who was very frustrated with the bureaucracy of politics and religion at his time. So, and, but he achieved some level of an enlightenment. And then he went to China himself, skipped all of the, all of the red tape, and then brought back the knowledge to Japan. And then he was influential enough to like start building temples and all of that, you know, like he was yeah. like a spiritual leader of the time, like mm-hmm. probably one of the most famous um, Japanese um, like Buddhist figure. You know yeah. of 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 that time. You know, 12th century, 13th century. So anyway, um, so Shingon Buddhism is like a big sect, and because the Annen family came previously from a um, f- from a sect in Kamakura where. Coincidentally, Nujawis' studio was on that block where our clan, the Wada clan, mm. had the memorial there. Wow.
2: wow.
0: Yeah, but but it's also strange because my parents only found out that we were related to the Wada clan when they took their parents' remains to Koya-san, the headquarters, uh, or, or you know the the most sacred site for the Shingon religion in Wakayama, Japan, which is, you know, really, really uh, far, right. like a couple of hours south of Osaka. Wow. And I've been there a couple of times, it's a really, very beautiful place. Mm. So th- the, so they only found out, you know, maybe 10 years ago about the story of the Wada clan being persecuted. Mm. They almost got their head chopped off and then they escaped and then they became the Annen monk in in uh, Koyasan.
1: Wow. Wow. Yeah. And you are living that truth with, I mean, with one with, of course, with your name, but with what you're doing with your day-to-day mm-hmm. life, which is amazing. Yeah. That's a great story.
0: You yeah. know uh, So I don't know if my dad knew of that history, but yeah, he named me Shin Go, and Go means self, but the truth, Shin is still the truth. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Wow.
1: Um, speaking of truth and speak um, and, and, um, and the word in 2013, you led a TEDx Tokyo talk where you spoke
0: about identity.
1: Can you tell us mm-hmm. about that, about that experience? Well,
0: <laughs> well, mind you, disclaimer, TEDx is kind of like the, I don't know, the second cousin of TED, <laughs> even, 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 even though many great talks have come out of TEDx. You know, yeah. TEDx is, is like a, a regional branch of TED right. where people kind of organize and put on their own shows. Right. You know what I mean? So at that time, the organizer had tapped me to do something. And I was very eager to like do one of these TED talks, you know, like yeah. I'd seen so many of them. I was very excited to do it. But then they're like, no, we need entertainment. So please uh, do music. You know, Mm -hmm. he wanted me to perform, but I was just so eager to deliver some kind of a message. That's why I chose to do two a cappella songs, one in English and one in Japanese.
1: We are currently as a as a nation, as a world, uh, we are experiencing some very interesting times, one with the pandemic and most recently with the protests that have um, been sparked by the recent um, police killings of uh, George Floyd, Brianna Taylor, and Ahmad Aubrey. As an activist, what do you see for our future? What do you see in the future? Are you optimistic? Are you hopeful? I mean, it seems to be a lot of stuff being impacted um, and you're seeing it not only in within America, within Americans' borders, but you know, it's sort of sparked. Um, In other countries as well, as inspired, I should say, inspired other countries as well to be more vocal and have taken to the streets. Mm -hmm. What is your take on
0: the current state? Well, can I make a confession of sorts? Yes. Sure. Like, and this is, uh, I'm sure Stan can relate Mm -hmm. that when we're like speaking to our audiences, we can be as brave as we want, as bold as we want, as instigating as we want to, we can be controversial. You know, yeah. we're, we're, we're very like confident and we can be sly. We can be funny. You know what I mean? Because we, we, we have an audience. It doesn't matter if it's virtual. It doesn't matter if it's 10 people or hundred people, we're still wired to think that way.
2: Right.
0: And the moment we take ourselves out of that element, we, almost feel naked, you know, even though you might be part of a revolution, you might be part of a protest. And I have to check myself to like be a lot more vulnerable in that way so that I can be on the side of the people instead of trying to play this artist slash activist role, trying to dissect everything and trying to say the most smart thing that no one else is saying, you know, right. like, be- right. because I'm already wired like that, right. you mm-hmm. know? So I, uh, and this, is, this has nothing to do with protesting or activism per se, mm. but artists have the leisure to say, I'm not going to do what everyone else is going to do. Right. You know, like I'm going to make a painting that everyone's going to carry, but, you know, I don't have, you know, I can move on to something else while people are doing that kind of thing, you know? Right. Like you can start the fire, but you don't have to watch the fire. Right. And, mm. and yeah. I think we, we kind of have to like, scale that back sometimes you know and so, that and that kind of um to me that that directly relates to how we participate in public discourse or how we encourage each other to vote for example you know mm-hmm. what i mean like voting is so powerless at times mm-hmm. it's, it seems very um ineffective mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. you know like for example if you live in a blue state or red state and you know the electoral college is going to lean one way like you know it's that type of feeling because you're one over a million your voice is only one over a million and you feel that when you're creating art you're just one over one like this is my voice you know so it's really hard to marry those two ideas I feel like you know Mm. so I think the way we kind of like propagate our voices you know like and and especially in today's day and age, like because everyone's just shouting at the same time, you know, it's really hard to, hard to navigate. Even it's, it's very hard for me to navigate even through my own voice. Mm-hmm. And it also, also relates back to what we were saying earlier, you know, like I'm always thinking what is the most effective way to convey what I'm feeling. Mm-hmm. And sometimes you kind of get stuck in a, you know like a like a like autopilot yeah yeah
3: yeah I can definitely um relate like I feel like um, sometimes sometimes because of the position we're in people are looking to us for like guidance uh, looking to us for our our stance on things and and sometimes I think artists are Maybe more quiet than people would like, not necessarily because they don't have a take on what's happening, but sometimes because they're, they're observing and, and sometimes we're, we're looking like there are people on the ground or people who are far more, um, knowledgeable of what's going on. And we're looking to those folks. Sometimes I feel like in these moments for leadership and guidance as well, even though we are thought influencers, um uh, whether we, uh, whether that was the goal or not, um, these are the positions that we have been, in some cases, thrusted into. Um, and you know, I'm a person who, um, I believe that, like you know, I like I take on these roles. I like, I'm in my family, I'm the baby, right? I'm the youngest, but I feel like my entire life, I kind of was thrust into leadership. I wasn't necessarily looking to be a leader um like I just was put in certain positions and kind of just stepped into it and did what I had to do Um, which I feel like is what oftentimes happens um in these situations um hence why so many young people end up leading the movement not necessarily because they they um you know feel like it's their job to lead it but oftentimes because they look around and they don't see anyone else doing the job the way it needs to get done so then they step out and they just do it and so So a lot of times I find myself uh, it's almost like voyeurism, right? Like where it's like you're you're taking in so much information, you're taking in so many point of views and just really trying to not lose your voice in the mix. So you're trying to quiet your your thoughts process a bit and really figure out where you stand um, on these things before you just kind of jump out there and say anything um, because you're going to be held accountable. So I want to make sure at least Mm -hmm. uh, my voice is true in these moments, um, before I just say anything. So yeah, it's a tough, it's a, it's a tough position to be in, you know? Um, it's definitely not something, uh, to make light of, you know?
0: Right. Yeah. It's, it's, it's both, you know, like you have to be careful, but at the same time, if you look at something like a protest or a rally, yeah. not everyone's on the same page, right. obviously, all, right? Right. Everyone's basically have, have their own, own set of opinions, but they're somehow they're all rallying about the same thing, which is amazing. Sure. So, I mean, my whole thing earlier, what I said was it was almost like, you know, we all have to get over certain things so that we mm. can agree on something. Yes. You know, so that's important, too, sometimes.
3: Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely.
1: Yeah. Uh, you have been described as um, addressing important issues from Japanese ethnicity to sexual exploitation to the education system. Very much a critic um, or, or provide critique, rather, critique of uh, Japan and Japanese culture. Um, how has that been received by uh, your native country? when you speak to certain things um, happening in Japan, culturally?
0: Well, over the years, the main big projects I've tackled is one is nuclear energy. Mm -hmm. I've Mm -hmm. done extensive research and talks and presentations about the dangers of nuclear energy, basically. And pre and post Fukushima, I was very active in that. Mm -hmm. I've dedicated many, many hours of Research, even traveling around the world just going to libraries and uncovering you know documents and books that people have forgotten about mm. so I've, I've done many presentations on that and then i've also done extensive research and talks about the japanese constitution which is still a very much a hot button topic mm-hmm. whether you know japan wants to uh reformat the constitution because there's this whole controversy that the u.s basically wrote it for them while while they're being occupied and so yeah i've done a lot of activism regarding that and yeah there's always backlash you know but but all but also try to you know keep 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 it Neutral in a sort of sense that I, my role as an activist is really put the information out there and they can really decide how to interpret it or what to do with that information. So there's always a buffer between my work and myself. So I don't necessarily care if my work gets criticized because they don't agree with it.
3: Right.
1: Right. In addition to being a touring hip hop artist, you mentioned before with your activism, but you've also, um, recently been directing and producing short films. Can you talk Mm -hmm. to us about that?
0: Well, yeah, I I do have a couple of things that I've kind of, you know, forgotten about and haven't finished. So I I do need to get back on that saddle. Mm -hmm. But yeah, making short films, whether it's music videos or something more scripted, is always fun. Um, Although several of the music videos I have produced, it has no dialogue. Mm -hmm. I don't know why it ended up being that way, but I've, I, I have never like done like a full scripted conversation type short film yet. You know, Mm. it, it, because all of, all of my videos, it kind of stems from an idea Mm -hmm. that, Hey, I want to visualize this. So how can we, you know, what, what, what kind of skills and talent do I need to put together? You know, and a lot of times it's just made the same way I make albums. I reach out to my friends with different talents and, and mostly I do my own editing, but yeah, I, I usually tap my friends and then we knock it out.
2: <laughs>
0: and, and what what are the longer ones called Bustin? We did in 2000. When was that? Maybe 14. And that was protesting the unlawful, like shutdown of nightclubs by police. Mm-hmm. Uh, because there were, uh, referring to a 60-odd-year-old some sixty odd year old cabaret license law that was made after World War Two to oh, come I shut down the clubs that we were dancing after midnight, you know? Because right. technically, this whole time, these clubs were not allowed to have a dance floor. Really? So, so there, yeah. Yeah, unless you had a license. But even if you had a license, I think you could only go up to 1 a.m. So mm. all the famous... Clubs that played, you know, till 5, 6, 7 a.m., yeah. those were illegal this whole time, but they started to enforce it. So, so we kind of made crazy. a movie in protest for that, yeah. Right. And then we, we kind of won back our rights, so that was pretty significant. Wow. wow. Even though now, you know, we have the whole new coronavirus scare and then none of the uh, venues are able to operate, so right. Right. it's going to be a very tough challenge ahead of us again, yet again. Yeah. Wow.
1: So speaking of which, so speaking of that, um, what do you foresee like post-COVID or even a, a, a six months from now, you know, as a performing artist um, who tours extensively, like how do you foresee moving forward?
0: Well, it really depends on the particular country or city mm-hmm. or whatever mandate that they, they decide to. To, uh, you know whatever guideline they, they decide to uh, put out there. Right. So, of course, I would love to keep playing in front of the audience, but I really don't know. Right. You know, yeah. I really don't know. Yeah. But my main focus really is education. You know, mm-hmm. I like ever since I came back from tour in March, I did mad amounts of research, so I know exactly what the pitfalls of the PCR test is, I really, mm-hmm. I read all the papers, I read all the initial diagnosis of the patients, i you know, i put a graph together, uh, graph together, you know, what the patient curve is, mm-hmm. and I I know it, you know, mm-hmm. in and out, and a lot of this information is just like, coming out months later now, you know, yeah. now right. I just read something yesterday that COVID was around in the US in December, mm-hmm. right. you know, and that was like, unthinkable, like, few months ago they would vehemently deny something like that right so anyway my my core message you know along with my friend dr shimon kamei that i work with is that we have to be a lot more conscious of our immune system Mm -hmm. you know what i mean because you can't just blame everything on the virus and a lot more people are saying that now that your body as a terrain is a lot more important than what the virus is going to do to you it's more like what the virus can do to you right. you know so so of course it's horrific that in a lot of situations that people are turning for the worst but there has to be a certain explanation why that is you know right. And, right. and and the, and also there has to be an explain, explanation why the majority of the people can get over it right you know right. and yeah and what people fail to report is that even during these Quote asymptomatic, uh, you know, infections people are still producing millions and millions of viruses mm. and still holding it and not being affected by it. So, mm. what does that mean? You know, right. it's right. It, it is your body of actively producing them, passing around in your body and acquiring the immunity the natural way, the organic way, right? Mm. So
1: that's, that's actually, it's, it's interesting that you bring that up. I mean, not being a scientist, but um, one of the things that we say, even with children, is that you don't want to keep your house, for instance, sparkling clean, because then you want your child or anybody, you want them to be able to fight certain diseases mm-hmm. off. Mm-hmm. And now with everybody with the gloves and the and the the hand sanitizer and you know, and the mass, which is all great. And we should be using that to protect ourselves. The fear that I have or the concern rather that I have is that now we're certain things that we are exposed to on a daily that Mm -hmm. we're naturally fighting off. Now Mm -hmm. we won't have that because now we're being proactive or too, too clean and too, um, um, too preventative, you know, and that, you know, our body may not be able to fight off what we used to be able to.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I mean, to get into the nitty gritty, you know, the world of microbes is a whole universe mm-hmm. in and of itself, right. mm-hmm. you know, and I personally believe that the establishment, they purposely want you to c- confuse bacterias, and viruses, right. they're yeah. not the same thing, right. Right. you know what I mean? And most likely, it's probably better not to have so much consumption of random bacteria because mm-hmm. they can wreak havoc on you. They can lead to infection that's unnecessary and it's avoidable. Right. But viruses is a subgroup that is altogether, they behave, behave differently. You know, They're more mm-hmm. like communication agents between cells. And in between bacteria. So I think there has to be a whole nother level of understanding what viruses are in the first place so that we don't treat all viruses as if they are pathogens, like Mm -hmm. they're, they're about to cause harm. What if viruses are helping us achieve immunity based on what is out in the environment? You know, what if viruses are communicators between stress hormones so that, cells can better prepare so that they don't have to go into self-destruct mode Mm -hmm. you know what i mean like there are a lot of theories out there but right now they treat all viruses as if they're pathogens and all bacteria as well you know Mm -hmm. and the only way to not get sick is to kill the virus Mm -hmm. so it's almost like this exactly what you said the The government would like you to think that you know you need to vaccinate, you need to keep keep yourself sterile you you don't want to have contact with any of this stuff right. mm. but I don't believe that to be true. I don't think that is part of evolution right.
2: mm. like
0: we didn't come this far, you know what I mean yeah. by avoiding viruses even our skin produces antimicrobial enzymes mm. you know what I mean right. so. That's why we don't get infected left and right. Right,
2: right.
0: It's only when we 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 have we have like cuts and stuff that are you know more of the skin is in, exposed mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that you know viruses and um, bacteria can get in there. Right.
1: Shingo, you are a prime example of STEAM. You are, you are incorporating science, technology, education, arts, and music, and, yeah. and math. It's, I love it.
3: The, the E is actually engineering. I engineering. know, but you it's said, the- right, <laughs> you a little remix a second ago, but, but not yeah. But you
0: know, like I, I definitely took it upon myself because I knew that it would affect all of us. Yeah. You know what I mean. So it's important to be able to read a news article and point out what is wrong and what it, what they're exaggerating, what they're omitting on purpose, mm-hmm. right? You you already know how the how the mass media does it. You know they yeah. might cite one article, and even though the article has certain disclaimers, they'll ignore it altogether, and then they'll, they'll create their own headlines, right. yeah, which is absolutely. which is a uh, not technically lying, <laughs> but they're fabricating a narrative for sure. Yeah. It,
3: it definitely can be reckless, you know. Mm-hmm.
1: Currently, you reside in Hawaii. Now, anyone who's been to Hawaii cannot blame you for wanting to reside there, us included. Right. I mean, you know. <laughs> <laughs> it's paradise. Right. Um, but why, what made you decide to settle there?
0: Well, yeah, number one, it was the climate. Because I was in Los Angeles for about four or five years. And I, and I mm-hmm. was making that my home base. After being in Bay Area for for so long, and then I I kind of thought about moving to New York for a while, and I was this close to getting an apartment, but that kind of fell through, mm-hmm. and then and then I also lost my uh, place in L.A. That's a whole nother story. So I was kind of uh, stuck for a minute, you know. And then I started looking at Hawaii, and that's how I end up moving here. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And what are some of current projects that you're working on? I know you mentioned um, something about uh, yeah, fashion. Yeah, I have
0: my hip-hop albums. Mm-hmm. Uh, right now I'm working with this guy named Jack the Rip from rural Indiana. He's a mm-hmm. very talented boom-bap producer. Um, I'm always working with my man DJ A1, mm-hmm. Spin Master A1. He's makes mm-hmm. a he he's been on this whole tear of using Japanese samples yeah. and uh, creating albums based off of that. He's probably crazy. three or four albums deep now just doing that. Mm-hmm. And other than that, I started making my own clothing uh, starting last year and just launched a couple months ago during this turmoil, but it's doing pretty well already. So it's been a lot of fun. Great. That's so,
1: so, what can we expect to see? Like, is it
0: um, t shirts or? Um... Yeah, it's all up on the website. You can check it
3: out. Yeah. Okay. okay. Um, definitely.
0: Yeah, the brand brand name is called Seven, but you kind of spell it like Heaven, you know, S E A V E N. Got nice, you.
3: Nice. And yeah. hey, can you drop the website for everybody?
0: Uh, it's e twenty two slash seven. Got it.
3: Nice, nice. And, um, and, you know, we just wanted to say before we before we go, you know, what I mean, um, all of our episodes are pre-recorded. But uh, by the time this comes out, it will be your birthday. So happy birthday, sir. Yes. Thank you. I would be 45. <laughs> nice. Yes. Yes. Nice. 2020. That's, That's awesome.
1: Song, well, Shingo, thank you so much. This has been a great pleasure to have you here and yeah, to share your story. You. you know, so much information. um I lo- Again, I think, you know. The work that you're doing is so important. Absolutely. Um, sharing the knowledge with the people and getting them dressed and giving them something to, to listen to. and yeah. <laughs> All the above. So I think that's great. You're providing
3: great. A, a wraparound service. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Got all bases covered, you know. No, thank you. No,
0: I really enjoyed your first episode. And oh, thank you. you guys are real role models. And oh, I, you, thank you, Bob. Thank you so much. I'm always inspired meeting you guys. I mean, you know, hanging out with
3: you guys. Yeah. Man, thank you so much, man. Well,
1: Appreciate we hope you. to see you soon. I mean, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. It's it's looking.
3: We'll see how things pan out, right? But,
0: uh, <laughs> oh, but yeah, yeah, yeah. I know it's it's kind of nutty. Who knows yeah. what's in store? Who knows what's going to be like in October? But yeah, yeah, For sure. Man.
3: But yeah, thanks again, brother. Take care. All right, man.
0: definitely. Peace out.
3: thanks for listening to artistry where art meets industry this podcast has been brought to you by substantial art and music for more information please visit www.subartmusic.com you can also follow us on social media at subart music we'll see you soon But we'll talk to you soon peace